Introducing Carvana Value Tracker, where you can track your car's value over time and learn what's driving it. It might make you excited. Whoa, didn't know my car was valued this high. It might make you nervous. Uh-oh, market's flooded. My car's value just dipped 2.3%. It might make you optimistic. Our low mileage is paying off. Our value's up. And it might make you realistic. Mm, car prices haven't gone up in a couple weeks. Maybe it's time to sell. But it will definitely make you an expert on your car's value. Carvana Value Tracker. Visit Carvana.com to start tracking your car's value today. Just a note before we start. This episode of Hometown History Europe contains details of nuclear war that some listeners may find disturbing. Last time we stepped through the door of a rural bungalow hidden in the English countryside, and we soon discovered that despite how it looks from the outside, this is not some basic farmhouse because through the blast screens lies a fascinating labyrinth of underground rooms where 600 personnel would run this region should the worst-case scenario occur. I'm Peter Laws, and today on Hometown History Europe, we conclude our subterranean tour of Cold War paranoia as we press on even deeper into Kelvin Hatch nuclear bunker. And we pick up our journey where we left off, discussing a campaign by the British government called Protect and Survive, It was supposed to show how the British people could respond to a nuclear war. But was this campaign helpful or futile? Nuclear historian Taurus Young. Protect and Survive was a public information campaign that was designed to reassure people that there was something they could do to protect themselves and their families should a nuclear attack happen. It was conceived in the mid-1970s and it was sort of true multimedia campaign. So they had animated TV slots, radio ads, pull-out newspaper supplements, and of course the so-called householder's booklet, which would have been distributed door-to-door. It was meant to be kept under wraps until a time of crisis, such that it would have a maximum impact when it was made public. But in early 1980, shortly after Margaret Thatcher came to power, Protect and Survive began to be shared in the press and by the BBC. And it's quite possible that this was no coincidence, uh, that it was an attempt to show that Britain stood ready during a time of heightened nuclear tension. But in fact, it backfired quite spectacularly. Uh, The campaign was widely ridiculed in the media, and it gave ammunition to groups like CND who were campaigning against nuclear weapons. I've spent hours in the archives reading about Protect and Survive, and I don't buy into the idea that it was sort of designed to keep the population quiet while the elites retreated to their bunkers. I think it's more likely that the government felt they needed something to show that they'd thought about the public's survival, but the civil servants responsible for it discovered quickly that there's not really any way to survive an all-out nuclear war. I mean, if you think about it, if the government were asked how they'd protect the public in the event of nuclear attack and they had nothing to show for it, they'd have probably been criticised even more severely. Britain had no money for mass public shelters or similar measures that might actually provide some chance of survival. Perhaps they thought that having something was better than having nothing. Uh, And some booklets and TV ads offering basic survival advice were that something. But unfortunately for the government, I think it was a case of damned if you do, if you don't. The task of monitoring and then hopefully helping to rebuild society would have been coordinated from bunkers like this. And it would have been quite an experience to be one of the 600 staff down here. Even though the plan was to house 600 people in the bunker, it's not like there were 600 beds. Instead, Kelvin and Hatch used a hotbed system, 
where staff would sleep for a six-hour shift, then wake promptly for work, and the next person would climb immediately into the warm bed for their six hours, and this cycle would continue for the entire three months. The bunker even has its own sewage plant, where the waste would be blown up a hundred meter pipe by compressed air and then enter two large sewage beds at the top. Now, you might think that anyone in this bunker would have been filled with relief at being down here, but don't be so sure. After all, their task was to monitor closely what was happening across the region, so they would know just how desperate it would have been on the surface. In the wake of a nuclear catastrophe, huge swathes of the country would have been decimated. Millions would lie dead or hideously injured. The survivors would have to cope with radiation sickness, but also a lack of supplies and medicine, no fresh water or food. Law and order would most likely collapse altogether. Life after a nuclear attack would be unimaginably hideous, like something out of a horror movie. The famous phrase that people use is that the living would envy the dead. On top of the horrific injuries and burns sustained immediately from the blast, those who ingested fallout, of course, would suffer radiation sickness and potentially a long, drawn-out death. But that would only account for some of the survivors. Doubtless, many would escape with minor injuries or even come out physically unscathed. But what we often don't think about is the psychological toll. So you've just witnessed what you thought was impossible. Uh, Nuclear mushroom clouds destroying the places you knew. You've lost your way of life. Your home is gone. Your workplace is gone. You've had friends and family members that have been killed. And now you're living every day in this post-apocalyptic landscape with the fear that you could be breathing in, eating or drinking contamination that's going to give you cancer and slowly kill you. And people would lose it. There's something called disaster syndrome, where in this kind of unthinkable situation, people just can't handle it and they crumble. Uh, Depending on how badly affected you are, you might not be able to look after yourself or you might be unable to complete what used to be straightforward tasks. And, And this disaster syndrome would seriously hinder efforts to rebuild society. The psychological and emotional effects would mean that many people simply wouldn't be able to function in an efficient or useful way anymore. Interestingly, there's one exception to this. A British civil servant in the 1980s thought about this problem and struck upon one group of people in particular who wouldn't be emotionally affected. The only problem was that they were talking about psychopaths, literal psychopaths, because they're completely emotionally detached. Psychopaths would not only be unaffected by the horrors around them, but they would be able to make decisions that were completely free from emotion and that they would therefore be best placed to lead the efforts to rebuild the country. Unsurprisingly, this suggestion didn't catch on, even within the civil service, and the idea was quietly shelved as being a little bit too bonkers, even within the context of nuclear war planning. In contrast, the bunker had order and power and supplies, but don't assume that would mean that being down here would be a huge relief. We simply cannot underestimate the psychological toll on the people down here. It wasn't like in the movies where important people got to bring their families in or sneak a few friends in. 
The personnel were chosen specifically for their expertise in managing a region in chaos. So yes, the staff may well have been safe from the bomb, but they had to sleep at night in what may have felt like a tomb with no sunlight, knowing detailed information about what was happening up there, where their friends and neighbors and spouses and children were most likely dead or facing horrendous suffering. For some, the mental strain may well have been intolerable. It's not that being in this bunker was totally safe, either. There was always the chance that the bomb, or indeed just some other natural occurrence, could cause the tunnel or the back entrance to cave in. And so if the people were trapped down here with a severely limited supply of food, they would have been doomed. You know... I passed a locked strong room earlier, which apparently is where state secrets would have been kept as well as weapons to defend the tunnel against invading locals. But also some of the literature down here suggests that this was the room where they would have kept the cyanide capsules too. This was just in case all 600 people became trapped in this bunker so that they could choose a quicker death or indeed if it became clear that there was simply nothing left of the world to come up to. Well, we're now here in sick bay, where people would come if they fell ill during those three months. And as I walk through it, I've got to say, like I'm hit with the strong smell of antiseptic chemicals. And next to me on the right here, I, oof, I can see a mannequin lying on a hospital cot with bandages around his clearly broken eyes. The face is all cracked. It's quite disconcerting. Oh, wow. And... And there's a coffin, there's a coffin leaning up against the wall, which uh, we shouldn't be surprised, the sick bay also has a morgue in it. In fact, I'm told uh, that anybody who died down here would have been placed in cardboard coffins, since cardboard is foldable and takes up less room. Every other nook and cranny down here would be taken up with food. These food supplies would only last, like I say, about three months that's how long the 600 people down here would have to coordinate an effective response to the blast. Once they ran out of those supplies, those heavy blast doors would have to be opened once more. And the guards with their weapons would have to be ready to face whatever was out there. And some of the survivors who had spent almost a hundred sleepless nights perhaps down here would have to make their way back up that tunnel where we came in to finally open up and step back into a post-nuclear England. It seems almost cliché, the idea of a post-apocalyptic landscape. We've seen so many zombie films or science fiction films that have been presented to us in the cinema, and it's easy to see it almost as a, as a stereotype, as a, a simply a film, a fictional idea. But places like this, like this nuclear bunker, remind us that this was not fantasy back in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. The real fear was there, that this is what England and indeed America and other countries like it, and indeed Russia, could end up like. It's a pretty terrifying thought. Well, I've, uh, I've left the sick bay now, and 
headed down a corridor, and oh my goodness, I'm back in civilization. Well, of sorts, I, I've discovered the bunker's canteen, um, which would have been the place where they would have eaten uh, down here, but today it's still used as a canteen, but now it sells drinks and cakes and museum souvenirs. And lo and behold, I see two other people in here. Um, actual humans, not mannequins. It's the first humans I've seen since I set foot in this place. One's a young man who works here, and uh, and the other is actually Mike Parrish, who we heard a clip from earlier, the owner of this place. He sat at a desk surrounded with a huge sprawl of papers. He's making notes. And so uh, how about we go and talk to him and ask a few questions about this vast nuclear bunker and how it wound up becoming a museum today. Uh, hello there, Mike. I'm Hi. Peter Lewis. I'm the guy who called from Hometown History. Yeah, it's good. Um, Mike, the bunker that we're in now was once a fully operational facility in the event of a nuclear war, and yet now it's a museum. Uh, how did that happen? Um, obviously... Uh, once Maggie Thatcher and Gorbachev had got together um, and decided the Cold War was silly, <laughs> they then made the bunker redundant, and so we bought it back and opened it as a tourist attraction, which was here, which is what we are today. Was there any resistance to you buying it, or was it fairly straightforward? Uh, no, we had to go to sealed public tender um, for the main bunker. We got the top back in uh, 1992 under the Critchell Down rules, and that basically says that if a government takes something from you under duress, they have to offer it back to the people they nicked it from in the first place. But the bunker didn't fall under those rules, and so we had to go to sealed public tender, and that's a real bugs bunny because you don't know who's bidding, what's bidding indeed, if anybody's bidding. Um, but we put our best bid in, and uh, we got it. And obviously we wanted it because uh, it's in the middle of our, albeit large, back garden. And the last thing we wanted was somebody else doing what we're doing. Public's lovely if you've got some control over it, but a real pain if you haven't. <laughs> and and, and what's, it, what's it like uh, running a place like this? Well, it's a privilege because obviously it's historic. Um, it's lucky that it's, it's uh, here in the middle of the farm. It's very good for us as a farming family. It's performing well doing that. And it seems like you've, you've, you've branched out into other things. I mean, when I've walked through, I've heard about uh, events going on here, like um, zombie chases or paranormal groups and things like that. So tell me a little bit more about the things that are beyond just the museum. Well, people, when they come out for the day, generally want to come out for the day. Yeah. And if they just came to the bunker, uh, that was all they could do. And that takes about an hour and a half, unless you're an anorak, in which case it'll take about three hours. <laughs> um, so we decided we'd wanted other things. So we put a ropes course on the top, a high, high wire tree top adventure course on the top, um, which was just something else that you could do and then visit the bunker. So it, it, it filled up a day. Obviously, we're fairly unique, and so that's why we have lots of paranormals down here uh, who are chasing ghosts. It's a very safe place, obviously, once the doors are shut, and so we have lots of scouts stay down here overnight um, because it, it's safe and it's obviously a, a different attraction. So, um, yes, we branched out into lots of things, uh, all because farming isn't particularly profitable, and so every farmer in this world has had to diversify. This is one of our diversifications. Mm -hmm. Are there any ghosts down here? Apparently there's an awful lot, yes. Oh, um, I'm like a, a, I'm a disbeliever. I haven't seen one yet, but it doesn't mean to say they're not here because the people I speak to are very uh, genuine people who do believe they've seen a ghost. I think it's rather like you go to a, a party and there's three or four beautiful girls there and you look at each one and think that's lovely, but there's actually only one that looks you in the eye. 
and that's the one you go and ask for a dance and that's the one that you then marry and live life ever after uh, but at the moment I just haven't had a ghost look me in the eye so they may be there but they haven't actually yet uh, made a connection I think it's all to do with connection and your, your thingy so uh, yes there are apparently lots of ghosts here go on YouTube Kelvin Hatch uh, Bunker Ghosts and you'll find lots of uh, lots of ghosts <laughs> and um, last question is uh, obviously there was, there was a time when I suppose the, the threat of uh, you know nuclear war was, was higher certainly when I was in the 80s. But then it seemed to have kind of gone away a little bit. How do you feel about the level of, say, nuclear threat today? It's certainly interesting that the youngsters of today have no concept of the Cold War, which is obviously, because I'm a lot older than you, uh, went through. Um, So in a way, we're educating them. It's a good thing. Uh, Giving you an example, uh, Ukraine has started. So as you'd expect, we've had lots of people saying, oh, can I please come and book a space in your bunker? And I say, well, yes, you can. But, you know, I want to know you've got an awful lot of uh, liquid assets. Come and see me and we'll have a chat. And they sort of laugh when I mention the figure. But it's not like the Second World War where you went down the underground and you came out the next day, saw the ruins, but you went with a stiff upper lip back to work again. Uh, if you go down here, Chernobyl was, what, 25, 27 years ago? You're going to be down here for five, six, seven years. And so it's a completely different concept, which I don't think really has sunk into the younger generation. They don't quite understand that if you're going to be down here, you're going to be down here for a long, long time, if the devastation is as you know predicted. So, so you are actually offering places for people if they require it well very tongue-in-cheek oh, okay. uh, <laughs> we uh, after 9-11 um we had over 200 people inquire um none of course who converted and i actually got death threats as cashing in on tragedy um i hadn't been it was a website that was five six seven years beforehand because websites never die and uh, and so uh, they'd picked up on that it was done as an advertising thing when we first opened but uh, um so yes we are getting people who are interested but at the moment no nobody's that interested well thank you mike it's a fascinating place and so so much to learn from you so thank you it's a pleasure well i leave mike and have a quick browse for souvenirs that are on sale i spot a wind-up torch with kelvin and hatch written on it uh kelvin and hatch themed mugs and even hairbrushes oh and just on a little shelf there there's a collection of protect and survive leaflets on sale. The original leaflets seen are re- reproduced for this shop. Just looking at it, I can hear the echo of that creepy synthesizer music and, yeah, turn away from that. I'm going to buy this map of the bunker instead, and I've got this little DVD here on the history of the place. And I've also managed to pick up a transcript of the audio tour, which will help me, you know, fact-check this episode. But, uh... He has a, you know, a wave goodbye to Mike, who's back with his papers. I kind of head back out. And uh, you can call me a bit weird, because there is an exit right next to this canteen. I could get back to my car, but I'm going to head back into the bunker. I'd like to just walk, retrace my steps, walking all the way back through the rooms and the corridors. I'm not actually sure why. I think I've got everything I need for this podcast, but I just don't feel ready to leave here yet. Now, don't get me wrong, I would never wish to be trapped down here for three months, but there is something there is something fascinating about this place that makes me want to linger for a while. On one hand, as I kind of 
look at this place and walk through it are marveling at the ingenuity of human beings. You know, people who could build what feels like a fully working town under the ground, that's, that's amazing and a testament to our, to our talents and ambitions. And yet simultaneously as I stand in this place, I'm angry. I'm angry at the thought that we humans can take that scientific talent and tenacity to also build bombs so powerful that places like this become necessary. Kelvin and Hatch Nuclear Bunker is certainly worth a visit. It's fascinating, it's spooky, it's strange. And yet for someone like me who remembers the 1980s, it has this sort of haunted nostalgia about it. The, the nuclear threat back then was not a museum piece, it was real. And maybe that's the sobering part of this as I walk back through. I'm just being reminded that it's not like nuclear weapons have gone away. They feel like they almost have, don't they? <laughs> At least to me, they did for a while, but only in the public consciousness. We, we've buried nuclear weapons out of sight, just like we've buried this bunker. But as I step back out into the sunlight again, and I wince at just how bright the world can be, I think about the conflicts in the world today, I take a breath as I head back to my car. As I place the maps and the documents I bought, I, I can still smell the bunker. I lift my map to my nose, I can breathe it in. The paper is thick with the musty scent of underground. I put the map down, I pull away in the car. In the rearview mirror, I can see, well, nothing. I see nothing. All I see is a hill with an entire world, a secret world hidden underneath it. This place was never needed in the end, thankfully. And so I switch the radio on as I leave. Russia has formally warned the United States and its allies against supplying further weapons to Ukraine. I check my wing mirror and catch a glimpse of the communication mast of the bunker. And maybe I shouldn't. But I turn the radio off. Because now that I'm out, I, I just, just want to go home. Well, thank you for listening to this rather intense set of episodes of Hometown History Europe. I'd like to thank Mike Parrish for his interview. Do visit Kelvin and Hatch in Essex in the UK if you get the chance. It's quite an experience. I also want to thank Taras Young for his insights into these episodes. If you want to hear more from Taras, then I'd really recommend his book, Nuclear War in the UK, and also his most recent book, Apocalypse Ready, which looks at disaster advice from around the world. Both books are filled with information, but also packed with illustrations from government posters, ads, and leaflets of the time. It's like a little kind of nuclear time capsule. The last thing to say is that if you're enjoying the show, do consider leaving a rating or review. That helps people find us easier. Also, if you would like to get ad-free episodes of this podcast and also my other scary true stories show, Frightful, then visit patreon.com forward slash Peter Laws. We're adding new content for members all the time and you can cancel at any time. It just really helps me be able to have the time to make this show. And finally, thank you for listening. I'm Peter Laws and you've been listening to Hometown History Europe. Goodbye.
After an attack is over and the all-clear has been sounded, arrangements will be made as soon as possible to treat any people who are ill or injured. Listen to your radio. Details will be given about what to do, when to do it, and how. If anyone dies while you are kept in your fallout room, move the body to another room in the house. Label the body with name and address, and cover it as tightly as possible in polythene, paper, sheets, or blankets. Tie a second card to the covering. The radio will advise you what to do about taking the body away for burial. Taking charge of your future starts with taking the first steps. And saving up to $30 a month on Cox Internet with the Affordable Connectivity Program makes those steps easy to take. Whether they bring you to click upload on your first short film or join now for an online book club. Applying is easy. See if you qualify at cox.com slash ACP. Non-transferable one per household application and eligibility decisions are made by the FCC. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the Internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Hamburglar, the time is yours. Bravo, bravo. He said, these are McDonald's best burgers ever. And then, can I keep them? And then he just grabbed them and ran away. Brubble. Now get a Big Mac or double cheeseburger for two bucks in the app. Limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. Must opt into rewards. Visit McD app for details. Available at most restaurants in this area. Comparison of McDonald's classic burgers to prior burgers. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba.